Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're picking up in Numbers 3, and we are again in the book of Numbers facing the wilderness. So they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're getting prepped to go. Chapter 1, if you remember, God had them get organized, and he told them to prepare to move. They had to get all their ducks in a row. They had their tribes, their census leaders. God counts his people, and God names his people. And we talked a little bit about if you're going to get ready to be in the wilderness in life, start taking stock of things and start organizing. Numbers two, he organizes them. So God does a third thing with his people. He gets them counted, he gets them named, he gets them organized in chapter two. And it's only been 18 months since they left Egypt. So this firstborn nation is getting ready to be a nation and God's setting them up for that. If you think of Leviticus as setting them up for worship and putting God first, this is setting them up for life. And I thought that was an interesting kind of connection too where Leviticus is about the priesthood, it's about the sacrifices, about taking care of your spiritual life. Numbers seems to be taking care of your day-to-day busyness kind of life. So in this chapter, he's going to assign them work. So first they got prepared, now they're going to have things to do. So we're going to pick up with the Levites who got overlooked in chapter 1 and 2. And I know, Levi, that always upsets you. Um, but this, these two chapters are all about the Levites and what they're going to do. And he's starting primarily with kind of the, the work that they're going to have to do. So here in verse 1, now these are the records. That records word is the same word toldoth in the Hebrew that we saw back in Genesis. So the, the, these are the records of Aaron and Moses or a genealogy of Aaron and Moses when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron. I'll say all the names with a Minnesota accent. Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he consecrated as to, to minister as priests. So notice that minister in, in the biblical sense of minister is an action. It's not a noun. So today we use the word minister like it's a, a, a title for a person. And here the, the people do minister as priests or they, it's something they do. Nadab and Abihu had died before the Lord, verse 4, when they offered profane fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. They had no children. In other words, their line is done and gone. So Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests in the presence of Aaron, their father. So we have these this toldoth, or we're going to have this kind of remembering that God's going to do. Um, verse 2 has the names of the sons. So it's an extremely short genealogy because he's starting with Aaron and he's only ending one generation later. So it's still a told off, even though it doesn't cover seven, eight, nine generations. Um, and this is getting their records in order so that as they try to track for Messiah, they know where they're going to do that. Verse three, Aaron, their father. Uh, now at this point, all Old Testament priests from here forward have to go through Aaron. Remember with Abraham, there was a, a priest of, of the line of Melchizedek. So there's other priests in the Hebrew nation, but at this point, the official priests are only the sons of Aaron. Um, so we, we'll get to Melchizedek again when we get to the New Testament. But at this point, 
were there. So now all Old Testament priests are through Aaron, Aaron, and they're not um, they're not just a Levite as priest. So Aaron is only one of the Levites. He's of the tribe of Levi, but there's other Levite people that aren't priests then. And we're going to get to those in this chapter. Nadab and Abihu are dead. Muth means they were executed. <laughs> executed. Um, Eleazar and Ithamar are the fathers of the priests that are going to take turns and they're going to have like a cycle that they go through. We'll get to that later. So, um, then they serve in the tabernacle. Verse four, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron, the priest that they may serve him. Um, and then they're going to get orders as to what to do. They're going to be bringing an offering. So there are non-Levites that are going to serve, but they're going to serve as Levites, as farmers, shepherds, musicians, hospitality. Remember we talked about a lot of these different roles. Every other Levite simply serves the sons of Aaron and they're directed that way. And then verse seven, they're going to tend to his needs and the needs of the whole congregation before the tabernacle and meeting to do the work of the tabernacle. So though they're not priests, the rest of the tribe of Levi is going to be doing things that support the priesthood. Somebody has to do the farming and someone has to do the heavy lifting. So they shall attend to all the furnishings of the tabernacle of meeting and to the needs of the children of Israel to do the work of the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron as his sons. They are given entirely to him from among the children of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So the point that the Levites are going to serve Aaron gets made in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. They're going to serve the whole congregation in verse 7. They're going to serve the tabernacle specifically. And we're talking about the material, like the furnishings, the poles, the, the coating. Remember, we went through all the tabernacle stuff. Um, they're going to attend to those furnishings in verse 8. This is a lot of work. Um, anyone who tries to do this that's not a Levite gets put to death. So at the same time that they're grunt workers and given what we might consider the lowest position, they're also elevated to kind of the highest status at the same time. They're the only ones that get to do this work even though this work is really the menial labor of what's going on. In other words, the last get to be first in God's kingdom and the people that want to push their way into that space are going to get killed or the first shall be last. And there's this kind of flipping of, of status that God assigns or ascribes to these people. God can do that, but we have different people getting treated differently. This is unequal treatment of human beings, and some people really struggle with that. And we're going to come to that idea as we go through this, these two chapters. So there's a justification of why God does it, um, what we're going to see in the next few verses, um, and that because it's justified by God, God's word becomes law, and therefore it is justice. It's a just way to treat people. So some of the Levites are going to be priests, some will do labor and serve, and some of them are going to take issue with this. They're going to get jealous and envious of each other, just like we humans do. And they're basically going to say what we see people today saying. That's not fair. It's not fair that some people get to do this and some people get to do that. Um, so this is one of the first examples of people that are going to be upset with the role they get. But in these chapters, we're going to stick to the fact that they're just getting the role assigned to them. So God gives his ra rationale and how this is just essentially by saying they are mine. And he says it four times. They're mine. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now behold, I myself have taken one, 
the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine, number two, because all the firstborn are mine, number three. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself, only God can sanctify, and only God can sanctify things to himself. All the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, they shall be mine. That's the fourth time I am the Lord. So he's making a point and he makes it four times. <laughs> so it's a big deal to God that because they're his, he can do what he pleases with them, right? And in this sense, if God owns the Levites, he's using the substitution principle as a full-fledged um, principle in the theological world. So it's one of those laws of the universe. If God wants to own something or owns it rightfully, something can be substituted for that thing that's owned. And it's the same law of substitution that makes it so Jesus can be substituted as a sacrifice for us. So instead of taking all the firstborn of the entire nation, he substitutes the Levites in that position, in that role, and he claims them as his. In other words, if you're walking around and you're a Levite, and if your genealogy tree shows you that, if you're walking around as Levite, you shouldn't exist because you should have been killed at the Passover. But you were covered by the blood of the lamb. God overlooked that. And in that sense, when he overlooks that sin, he then owns that person. Because by rights, by justice, they should have been killed. In the same way, if we let Jesus be the substitute for our sins, he owns us. That's a difficult principle for some people theologically. Because if you're owned, it's like you're a slave to God. Only when it's God that you're a slave to, it's kind of just. When it's other humans you're a slave to, that's incredibly unjust. The hard labor they're going to get assigned to is better than being dead in Egypt. And that's kind of the argument that I see God giving in 11 to 13 is that they are given mercy. And the mercy is they get to live. And then because God owns them, he's going to put them to work where he needs them in his kingdom. I myself have taken, they shall be nine, verses 11 and 13, makes it very clear that these workers belong to God. So when they complain about the jobs that they have, the Korathites are going to complain. They get swallowed up by the earth instantly because God says, okay, if you don't like the role you've been given, then we'll complete what should have been done to you in the first place because you should have been taken. So he's going to put them to work as he pleases. If we are children of God, we too are in this position. We've been claimed by God. He owns us. And how we respond to that is kind of something we need to think about. Verse 14 then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, saying, Number the children of Levi by their fathers' houses, by their families. You shall number every male from a month old and above. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And there, there were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, Libni, Shimei, and the sons of Kohath by their families, Amram, Izihar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the sons of Merari by their families, Mali, Mushi. I think Mushi is a great name, but that's just me. There are families of, by the Levites of their father's houses. I went and looked up all these names. A lot of them have to do with like this person is the gift of God and the prophecy of God, but there's no real pattern there amongst them. But well, there is one note in verse 19. Uh, if you go to Kohath and then Amram, remember both Moses and Aaron would have come from the line of Amram. So both Moses and Aaron are Kohathites which may lead to why they have all this envy and why some Kohathites are being treated differently than other Kohathites. Kohathites. Okay, so they're very small, 7,500. 
the other 12 tribes, remember, we are in the five digits, but here we're in the 7,500. And that's because the Levites are going to get split up into basically four camps. The role of the, um, the Gershonites will come next. Ger from Gershon came the family of the Libnites, the family of the Shimatites, and these were the families of the Gershonites. Those who were numbered according to the number of all the males from a month old and above, of those who were numbered there were 7,500. The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. So they get the back end of the tabernacle. Probably not the most prestigious position, and they get a lot of the tough work here. Let's see what they get. And a leader of the father's house of the Gershonites was Eliasaph, the son of Lael. And the duties of the children of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting included the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen door for the front for the screen door for the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and the, the screen for the door of the court and the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and the altar, and their cords according to all the work relating to them. So essentially the Gershonites are going to be the tailors, the tanners, the artisans that do embroidery. They're the ones that take care of anything that's flexible and covering, all the sheets, all the tapestries, all the leathers. Then you get the Kohathites. We'll just kind of crank through these. From Kohath came the family of the Amramites, the family of the Izharites, and the family of the Hebronites, and the family of the Uzielites. Again, that's a Minnesota accent. These were the families of the Kohathites. According to the number of all the males from a month old and above, there were 8,600 keeping charge of the sanctuary. The families of the children of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle. The leader of the father's house of the families of the Kohathites was Elizapan, the son of Uziel, their duty included the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary, which they ministered, the screen, and the work relating to them. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the leaders of the Levites with the oversight of those who kept charge of the sanctuary. An interesting thing at the end there. Um, even though Aaron is not, um, he's being singled out. So we're doing the tribe of the Kohathites from verse 27 through 32. But Eleazar is getting pulled out of that tribe. And we'll take note of that because this is one of the big things people get all excited about, that there's a mistake in the Bible. But it's very clear right there, right, that Eleazar is not, he's got different duties. He's getting pulled out of that group. So he's being named as having oversight. And there's a leadership structure. Another thing, God's creating order in his nation. And that order has leadership in it. Verse 33, we get to the third group. From Merari came the family of the Mahalites, Malites, probably cousins of the Cellulites. They're big people. And the family of the Mushites, these were the family of the Merari. And those who were numbered according to the number of all the males from a month old and above were 6,200. The leader of the father's house of the family of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihail. And there were to the camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And the appointed duty of the children of Merari included the boards of the tabernacle. Remember those boards were 30 feet long and they were massive boards. These just weren't two by fours at, at Home Depot. These were huge, three foot wide, massive boards. It would have taken multiple people to carry them. So the boards of the tabernacle, it's bars. Again, huge, massive, heavy, solid metal bars. It's pillars, it's sockets, it's utensils all relating to them and the pillars of the court all around with their sockets, the pegs, and their cords. So with all those things put together to maintain those things over time, 
These people had to then know lumberjacking, woodworking, construction, engineers, and frankly, they had to be huge muscular people to carry that stuff. So the big Mararis got to carry it on their shoulders. And whenever Moses said they were going to move, there had to be a sigh amongst these people because they got the heavy lifting. And you could say, that's not fair. Why do some people have to do all the grunt work? The reason God gave is because they're my people. I can use them how I want to use them. And I'll keep coming back to that theory. So let's summarize. We got Gershon on the west, Kohath on the south, and Merari on the north, which begs the question, who's camping on the east side of the tabernacle, which is where the front door is? Who gets that position of honor and privilege? Because we've just done the three different tribes under Aaron. Okay, so verse 38, moreover, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tabernacle of meeting were Moses, Aaron, and his sons keeping charge of the sanctuary. So again, we've pulled those three groups, or Moses, Aaron, and his son, he had two sons. So Moses' family and Eleazar's family and Ithamar's family. Is it Ithamar? They get to camp on the east, so a really small group, right? Um, they meet the needs of the children of Israel, but the outsider came near was to be put to death. In other words, stay away from this camp. It belongs to them. All who were numbered of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the commandment of the Lord by their families, all the males from a month old and above were 22,000. So Moses and Aaron had no duties listed here because they got all their duties listed in the entire book of Leviticus. So if you want to know what they had to do, you just read that entire book. So this is one of those spots, and you've, those of you who have come here a long time, you've, I invite you to find me. When people say there's mistakes in the Bible, ask them where, and just keep doing it and make them show you one. And this is one of those spots that I think you're going to be better at sharing your faith with people if you get this. There aren't mistakes in the Bible. There's just people who haven't read it, right? And then they say that a million times, and they come to it. But if you look at verse 22, 28, and 34, you're going to get to a couple numbers. And we're going to, one of those numbers is 22,300. Here we see the number in verse uh, 39. We hear, uh, so if you add those three numbers up in 22, 28, and 34, you get 22,300 people. Yes? Here it says 22,000. And then people get very excited and say, that's a mistake in the Bible. And look, they don't even know how to count and they can't even add. So how can you trust anything else? First of all, if that's the best they can come up with, I laugh in their face and say, that's really silly. But let's take a careful look at this because below we're going to get a third number. If you skim down to verse 43, it says 22,273. Aha, aha. That's three different numbers we have. This is crazy. So clearly there must be one of the explanations for this that you see amongst the theologians is that the Hebrew number three is kind of like this SS-shaped kind of thing with a slash between it. But the number for six has the same SS kind of thing without a slash between it. So a lot of people feel like this is just one of those kind of, they missed a jot or a tittle. Um, and the, the number for the Kohathites then is 300 off, and that's just an oops they made in translation at some point. Problem with that is we have multiple translations of the Bible, and they're all identical. So you have to then postulate that there was one central version of it before all these things that then got mistreated again and again and again. Or another alternative theory, which I like because we don't have to deal with the jot and tittle, tittle, is that Moses and Aaron's families, remember they were pulled out of that tribe? 
probably numbered about 300 people because with the Kohathites and the Merarites, we have 400 years of multiplication, 7,000 people. If you only have Aaron and his sons, you've really only got one generation of people. So 300 would be about the right amount of, amount of, num of numbers. And then when we saw numbers one and two, they didn't number what was holy and they didn't count the Levites. So when they're doing the whole national who's going to fight census, there was one group of people they didn't count because it was holy unto the Lord. You don't count what belongs to God. In this book, we have the exact same pattern that we saw in Numbers 1 or 2. You have, here's all the Levites that are for service of the temporal and tabernacle and to serve the congregation and to serve the people of Israel. But we don't count Aaron and Moses' families because they're the priests. They're holy unto the Lord. So not only is that consistent with what we've already seen in this book, but you can assume that number is right around 300 because it fits with the generations. In other words, if you carefully read the Bible, there doesn't have to be a mistake here at all. It could just work completely, but God doesn't count that group of people because they were holy unto the Lord. I sanctified to myself. God owns everything that's willing to be accepted by those people. So God uses us properly differently. So if you want to start working for God, if you want to get out of the wilderness of your life, because they're about to get into the wilderness, the first thing that has to happen for these folks is they have to get to work. They have a job they're supposed to do and they do their job. So Peter's told about his death and he wants to know what will happen about John. You remember that in the New Testament? What about that guy over there? And Jesus' response to him in John 21, 21, Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Jesus' reply is precious. If, you want, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. If you want to get out of the wilderness, get to work. Do what God's put in front of you today and do it with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and do it with joy. Even if that job is to haul boards, right? Or if that job's to drive a bus or take the dog out for your parents or clean the bathroom, which I can't think of anything worse. But those kinds of jobs have to get done even in the church and even in the kingdom. Somebody has to vacuum the floors. So if you want to get out of the wilderness, find a gap in your church community and start doing that thing that needs to get done. If it's not getting done, do it. So... Um, but essentially that was Jesus's answer to, to Peter is don't be looking at John and what, I, what work I have for John. Do the work I've given to you. And he actually had some pretty significant work for Peter to do. He had to go feed sheep. So God counts people. He names people. He organizes people. And I'm going to add a fourth one with this chapter. He assigns people work, gives them something to do. And God generally has people do the small things first. And then he works you to other opportunities as you do the small things with a great attitude. But if you can't do the small things with a good attitude, God generally doesn't give you other things to do. He'll let you sit on the small things forever. So now God's going to receive what's his. Verse 40, Then the Lord said to Moses, Number all the firstborn males. Steph asked me if there were more numbers in this chapter. Yes, there are. Number all the firstborn males of the children of Israel from a month old and above, and take the number of their names. And as you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the livestock of the children of Israel. I'm going to take these Levites. I'm going to get what's mine. So if we're stuck in the wilderness, another question to ask, if you want to play this out a little bit, what, have we given to God what is God's? Have we done that? And this could, this could be a whole conversation. I won't get into it. But if one of the preparation elements is to give to God what is God's, including that livestock, it means tithing. 
Because God has said that tithing is part of you giving to God what already belongs to him in the first place. Actually, everything you have belongs to God. Tithing is just a small token to, to recognize that. So a lot of times I've met people that for 20 years their spiritual life is just dead. And then I ask them about tithe and, oh, they can't afford to do that. It's like, why can't you afford to do it? If you never take it into your account in the first place, you don't even know what's missing. Like, honestly, have you assigned the portion to God what is God's? Or have you played games with that? So God asks them to number those people, and he talks again about claiming what's already his. Verse 42, so Moses numbered all the firstborn among the children of Israel. So we're not talking about Levites now. We're talking about the children of Israel. So he's numbering all the firstborn in the nation. As the Lord commanded him, and all the firstborn males, according to the number of names from a month old and above, of those who were numbered with them were 22,273. That doesn't match. Oh my goodness. We have another mistake in the Bible. If people honestly just show you those verses and show a mistake, one trick on this one is read the whole chapter and let the Bible stand up for himself. You cut the Bible loose, it's like a lion. It'll take care of itself just fine. This isn't a mistake in this kind of piece. It's inaccurate. It's not inaccurate or sloppy accounting. It is simply someone who hasn't read the book because if you read carefully in, in chapter 3, verse 39, the 22,000 was the Levite males in total. In this verse, it's the firstborn sons of Israel, which is 22,273. Two very different groups of people that we're counting. And lo, we have different numbers. What's amazing is how similar the numbers are. And the numbers are off, and we're actually going to get that addressed in the next few verses. So it's pretty clear from the text that God wanted them to see this 273 people difference. But that difference is relevant because if you're replacing every one of the firstborn sons, look at how individual God gets here. There's 22,000 Levite males and there's 22,273 firstborn sons in Israel. That's 273 people that have not gotten an actual human soul to replace their soul. God actually looks at it down to the level of individual. So we've got 273 people, and then one thought initially might be, how are you going to pick those 273 people? Oh my goodness. Uh, but God gives them a way out. He's merciful, and he uses the principle of substitution to take care of those individuals. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn children among Israel. So we've taken to care of 22,000 people. And the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock, same principle. And the Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. So, in verse 46, And for the redemption of the 273 of the firstborn children of Israel, who are more than the number of Levites, you shall take five shekels each for each one individually. You shall take them in the currency of the shekel of the sanctuary and of the shekel of 20 garage. In other words, you're going to take an accurate, the shekel of the sanctuary was known even by other nations than Israel as a true shekel because they saw that when they made a shekel, the actual coin, that God was watching them do it. So if they made false weights or false coins by putting a little tin in with their gold, that would weaken the coin. And that happened all over the ancient world, except for with the Jewish people. So the temple shekel was kind of treated like a true coin of a true weight. It was more valuable and precious because it was honest. And you shall give the money which, with which the excess number of them is redeemed to Aaron and his sons. So each person, instead of substituting a Levite human being, the tribe simply paid in five shekels and then that person was covered too. And everybody got to keep their firstborn sons. So Grant, we're glad to have you.
I would kind of hope there'd be a Levite to substitute for you because I don't know where I would find shekels anywhere. But we would find them, Grant. We would pay the shekels to keep you. So five shekels per life, that's the redemption money. So Moses, verse 49, we'll wrap up the chapter. Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those who were redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn children of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels according to the shekel sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons according to the word of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Why do they need to do this? Because God said so. That's the only rationale we have. So when people doubt if God said so or not, um, obviously they'd all heard God talk to Moses back in uh, Genesis and Exodus. Uh, so they don't doubt that that's happening. Otherwise, this would be an odd policy if humans came up with it. Numbers chapter 4. Holding most of the commentary on this one till the end of the chapter. And I'm going to come back with some final thoughts. Because if you've looked at the chapter, we're just going to get through it. And then at the end, I'm going to talk about it as a whole. I think it's going to work better that way on this one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Take a census of the sons of Koath among the children of Levi by their families, by their father, father's houses from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work of the tabernacle meeting. Notice here that in the last chapter, Gershon was the firstborn and was listed first. And we know he's firstborn from Leviticus 3.17. But God uses them differently here and he changes the order. And we see that here Kohath goes first. Likely, this is because this is the order in which you would take apart the tabernacle. First, you would take the coverings off. First, you'd do all these kinds of things. But before you take the coverings off, uh, you want the Kohath people to get all the furniture out of the building. So they get moved to the first position in Numbers 4. Um, also notice that instead of from baby age to old, we have the age of service being 30 to 50. Um, the 20s, a lot of folks think when you look at commentary, God was being really merciful and he said that when people are, you know, generally speaking from 15 years old to 30 years old, the expectation was they were making families. They were having eight kids. And the idea is if you're going to have kids, we want you to just stay home with your family and take care of your family and raise that family. And by the time you hit 30, your kids are getting older. It's time to get going. Some of your kids are 15 and often because they were getting married at 15, 16 years old. Um, so this was kind of a thought about why it starts at age 30. Another thought is he simply wanted people that were serving in the priesthood to be more mature. You've had more life experience. You've done some more things. That's not fair. Okay, it's the way God wanted it. And so therefore it is fair because if God commanded it that way, that's the way it is. Verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Koath in the tabernacle meeting relating to most of the holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins, which again waterproofed it, kept the water off it, and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue and they shall insert its poles. There's no connection here onto the maintenance of the objects. This is simply taking down, getting ready to travel. So chapter three is about when they're stationed in a camp. Chapter four, Four is about when they're moving and the duties change a little bit. So then we get to the showbread. On the table of showbread, they shall spread the blue cloth and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of light 
with its lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays, and all its oil vessels with which they service it. And then they shall put on it with the utensils and a covering of badger skins and put on it a carrying beam. I thought it's interesting because we went all through this stuff in Leviticus, right? And what each of these means and what the importance of them is, what they signify. And here it's almost like Leviticus is a foundational book so that we know what's going on, how important these objects are. They get treated with reverence at every stage. And I wonder the temple sanctuary people today that have built all this stuff, uh, the, in, the Temple Institute people, if they've got it all wrapped in blue. Like that would be kind of cool if they did, but I think they have it on display, which they maybe should think about because that's not, I think, how the reverence that they treated it with here. And they're doing all this while the tent is still standing. So all of this happens where the people of Israel generally don't get to look at the ark, right? Because it represents that presence of God. Over the golden altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins and they shall insert its poles. Each one of these things had those sockets for the poles um, and then they can carry those poles on their shoulder. Then they shall take all the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth and cover them with the covering of badger skins and put them in a carrying beam and they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. And they shall put on it all the implements with which they minister there, the firepans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar. They shall spread on it a covering of badger skins and insert its poles. Coverings then were wrapping everything up, getting them ready for travel. Think of it like bubble wrap, but with significant colors that represent the holiness, um, the royalty, uh, and the preciousness of this. Remember the blue and the purple dyes were the most expensive dyes. And we walked through like how they had to crack little shells just to get a drop of it. Um, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. So they get to carry them all out. But they don't touch any holy thing lest they die. This will become relevant later when they try to move the ark and somebody starts to trip and they think it's going to fall. So they put their hand on it and then they get killed instantly. That's what the poles are for. You don't get to touch it. It's like my computer screen at home. And I wish I could like have it like wrapped like that. But if you touch the computer screen, you put a fingerprint on it, you leave your oil on it. This is a solid gold lampstand, solid gold table. The last thing you want to do is wreck that nice, shiny, perfect thing with a big old fingerprint mucking it up. And I think God wanted it that way too. He's like me with my computer screen, doesn't want fingerprints all over his stuff. You don't get to touch it. And I'm playing that a little tongue in cheek. It's because it was holy. It was God's stuff and no human can presume to touch it. It's not yours to touch. It's like, <laughs> I, again, I'm making light of it, but it's like when we tell shadow, we can't touch things. And in the same way, when God says we can't touch things, we may feel like it's ours to touch, but it's not. So when God says something's an abomination to him, or when he says something is not appropriate to him, when he says something is unholy or not something we should defile or touch, we stay away from it. And I wish my dog would listen to me and God wishes we would listen to him in the same kind of relationship. He just says, don't do it, lest they die. So Aaron's, Aaron's sons do their job, then the Kohath sons come in and do theirs. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So they're not supposed to touch those things we just listed. Verse 16, the appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is, is the oil for the light. 
the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, and the oversight of all the tabernacles, so all the fuels and foods, all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, do not cut off the tribe of the family of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to do his service and his task, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. Only Aaron's sons get to lay eyes upon and handle those most holy objects. A very small group of people. Duties of the sons of Gershon. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Also take a census of the sons of Gershon by their father's houses, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, all who enter to perform the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and in carrying. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle of the tabernacle of meeting. Remember, these were giant curtains. They were not lightweight. It's not like they got off easy here. Uh, these were heavy, thick fabrics. Um, and when folded up, they would have been significant. So they carry the curtains of the tabernacle of meeting with its covering, the covering of badger skins that's on it, the screen door for the door of the tabernacle meeting, screen door for the gate of the court, and the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and altar in their cords, all the furnishings for their service, and all that is made for these things, so they shall serve. Aaron and his sons shall assign all the service of the sons of the Gershonites, all their tasks and all their service, and you shall appoint them all their tasks as their duty. This is the service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle and meeting, and their duties shall be under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. So the Kohath gets the furnishings, Gershon gets the fabrics, and then next we get to Merari, and remember they're the heavy lifters. As for the sons of Merari. Merari should be a name that we use a lot more, but I think it went out of style as Gary did. Um, but the sons of Merari, you know, that is, if you think of a new fashionable name for your kid, you want a good strong name, Merari. You shall number them by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them. Everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And this is, ever, and this is what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting. The boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets. And the pillars around the court with their sockets. Pegs, cords with all their furnishings and all their service. And you shall assign to each man by name the items he must carry. This is hyper-organized. And remember, God's a God of order, and it matters, and he names them individually. And I think he still does the same thing today. He has a job for each person that's unique and different, and he's named you and called you out to that work. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari, verse 33, as all their service for the tabernacle and meeting under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So the Gershonites carry the fabrics, Merari carries what some people think is about 19,000 pounds of wood and metal. So as a tribe, I hope they split that up. So again, we get to this idea of how is this fair? And the reality is in God's kingdom, it has an equity to it, but it doesn't have a fairness to it, right? And one is that they're all saved. They're all special. They're all Levites. They're all set apart with a holy close to the tabernacle position. You get to be close to God. But what that means is you work harder than everybody else does. See the principle? And the same thing's true of the ministry today. You want to serve God? You want to get closer to God? Get ready to put the work on. He who sets his hand to the plow should not sit, look back when they do it. 
So he gives them this work. He puts, tells them to shoulder it. Um, and he's, and is the only rationale God gave earlier on was because he's God and these are his people. That's all the rationale that God sees is necessary. Now we're going to take a census of the Levites. Verse 34. Moses and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families and their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work of the tabernacle meeting. You seeing a pattern in the, in the language? And those who were numbered by their families were 2,750. These were the ones who were numbered of the families of the Kohathites, all who might serve in the tabernacle meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And those who were numbered of the sons of Gershon by their family and their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle meeting, those who were numbered by their families, by their father's house, were 2,630. So this starts to read like a legal document, right? This is a census that's being taken. It reads like a government document because it is. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Gershon, of all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Aaron and Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. Verse 42, those of the families of the sons of Merari who were numbered by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families were 3,200. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Can you see why they call this book the book of Numbers? Right? We're just numbering things. And all who were numbered of the Levites, whom Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families and their fathers' houses from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old and above, everyone who came to do work of service and the work of bearing burdens in the tabernacle meeting, those who are numbered were 8,580. So the purpose here is that it's commanded by God and God wants them to tally this so there's a foundational record of how big Israel was. He can go generations without asking for a census, but at certain points in history, God asks for a count of his people so that there's a record of the growth of Israel. This is where David gets into trouble. He decides to do a census, but he doesn't wait for God to ask him to. And that gets David in trouble with God. God claims souls and he's forgiven them due to his covenant, Romans 3.25. He then redeems those sinners from the punishment they deserve, Romans 8, 21. And then he gives them new names, Isaiah 62, 2, Revelations 2, 17. And then he counts them, Numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, and Romans 9, 8. He, num he gets his people, he redeems his people, he, sets, he gives them new names and new tasks, and then he counts them, he tallies them. I don't know why God does this, but it's a way for him to show us that that matters to them, that every soul matters, and that he's counting them. I'll end the chapter and then we'll do some commentary. According to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service and according to his task. Thus they were numbered by him and the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. So some, if we want to know the nature of God, we can see an aspect of God here that he numbers people and the way he numbers them is not their gender, it's not their race, it's not how old or young they are. He numbers them according to their service and according to their task. What task did I give you? What did you do with your time? And he may call some people to do things like carpet cleaning. But how did you do that task? Did you do it to the glory of God or did you not? Did you do whatever God put in front of you with that kind of thing? So we have this 
principle here, and I want to dig into it because it's a big deal in the United States right now. This is part of our conversation and part of the political conversation. That here's a nature of God that America rejects entirely. And, and you, we can talk about this in the end, but I'll say that I'll give you a way to think about this. And I'm going to go through a lot of New Testament passages, so get your pencils ready. All people, according to, to God, are not the same. Doesn't make people equal. Okay? God uses people differently. Right? He offers an equitable opportunity to be in the work that he's called us to do. So where God has some issues of equality, that equality is questionable. So when people say equal rights for all, right? Very popular mainstream kind of idea. That idea has to be followed up because equality is not a thing. It's a, prepos- it's a, it's a condition. So the question that one should ask when someone says equal anything is equal what? What is being made equal or how are we equal? And is it different outcomes or is it different opportunities? So what is the equality we're talking about and how is the equality we're talking about, right? So in this particular chapter, you could skip over this or think that it's not relevant, but it's showing us something about God, that he cares about his people and loves them, but he assigns them different tasks. That's why I wanted to just do the whole chapter because it's a lot of repetition there. So there's these diversity of gifts that we have that are contingent on how God wants to use his people. In other words, he created you, he redeemed you, and he has a task for you to do that he wants that has something to do with how he made you and how he designed you and all of your life experiences leading up until tonight at this Bible study that have made you ready to do the work that he has for you. Another thought here is that God does care about age. Right? That's been a major theme through these two chapters. There's something about preparedness or readiness that has something to do with age. And he actually gives people retirement. Once these Levites turn 50, they're done. That's a great retirement age, especially if you got to carry heavy lumber every day. Right? I can't imagine how many twisted ankles I would have if I had to do this all the time. So the major principle in the church that goes all the way through is not just an Old Testament God. The God between the Old and that's two new new... Old and New Testament stays the same. So in 1 Corinthians 12, there are diversity of gifts, but the same Holy Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversity in activities, but the same God who works in all of us. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one of us to profit all. Very consistent theme that God has different people that he uses differently. So the only justification that God has that, and I think I've repeated this a few times, is that he's God, and it's how he decided to do it, right? So if he can do that as he sees fit, then that would be just. And if he gives you the equipment that, to do what you're supposed to do, or he'll never put you in a situation for which you are not able to get out, that means that he's being perfectly just with what he's assigned you to do, because he's a God that is just, and he can do as he sees fit. He's also perfectly merciful. So how do you reconcile those two very complex ideas? God makes us dependent on him and he makes us dependent on each other in order for the church or the body or any group of people to do anything significant. So if I can't do anything on my own, but I have to depend on you and I have to look to God for what I'm supposed to do in that relationship, then he's made us dependent on him as a body. This is wonderful and beautiful. It's God's major plan for both Israel and the church today. You are valued and then you're put to work. A lot of people love the value part and we have a lot of churches today that say you're so loved and you're valued. That's true. 
but they don't bother to tell you what you're supposed to do. So you get churches of thousands of people where only a hundred of them are doing the work. And there's no equity in work or duties that are supposed to be done. So everyone's work isn't the same, but that seems out of whack with how God set up his people of Israel. And in the New Testament, we see the same thing. God assigns souls different kinds of work, and then he gives them different rewards for their labors. You think, oh my goodness. We were talking about socialism earlier tonight, so if this gets to you, Carol, I'm sorry. You are equally loved, but you're given proportional work by God. And it's perfectly just because he knows you to your innermost being. You're given equal salvation, but you're given unequal rewards because you accumulate crowns for heaven, whatever those are. So there's this idea where God would say, well, do you believe in equality or not? And God would say both because he's God and he can do whatever he wants on that. So some people have a real issue with this. And I think part of the issue is they don't like the idea that they're owned by God, that God has claimed and owns you. And I'm saying that word again and again and again because I want it to rub into your, your conscience a little bit. You're owned by God. He has called you out and he has redeemed you and he's bought you. So if you're God's and we expect that he's just, <laughs> the justice for us would be that we're all killed just like the Levites. I could have left you in Egypt. So we are expecting God to be just with other people, but we don't want him to be just with us. What we want for us is mercy. God, please have mercy on me and forgive me. And God says, anyone who calls upon his name and asks for it will get it. You get that mercy. So whatever the role he has for us then is better than the death we deserve that's called mercy. So if he's called you honestly to haul lumber every day and do it with joy, and that's what he's put in front of you. That's the opportunity you have to show how you can serve the Lord. Don't work for your boss, work for God. Don't haul that lumber for the hourly wage. Do it because God has redeemed your soul and do it with that kind of a heart. So if you accept that he's your judge, then you're hoping that he's not just, that he's a merciful judge. But we also want him to be just. So this is a picture of salvation and the redemptive reality that goes around it, even as justice is a principle. And I say that because in truth, 58% of the United States of America, Steph gave me this stat, but you didn't give me the source on this stat. It was a survey from... So I don't have a source on this survey, but at 58% of the people in the United States say that moral truth is relative to the person. That's an interesting shift in American culture. That was a Pew American Family Life polling thing. The Bible really disagrees with that. Moral truth is not up to the individual. It's up to God. He establishes moral truth. So value in the person is not implicit to the person. We would love to determine what moral value is and moral truth, but we don't get to make that choice. The Merarites, the Gershonites, they didn't get to make that choice. And God operates this way all the way through the book of Revelation. Value in human beings is not internal to human beings. It's ascribed by God. God attaches the value to the people. Justice is therefore not individual to the person. It's not a social justice that we should seek. It's God's justice that we hope to avoid. Because true justice, if you say, I want justice, you're basically asking for everybody to get killed. So it's a very non-Christian idea to say, we want justice in this kind of way. And you say, well, that's not the kind of justice we're talking about. 
Equality then is in your opportunity that God gives you to serve. It's not in the outcome or the results that you get. So quality isn't about how much you have. It's the fact that God values you as a human being and has given you very different work to do from the person next to you. Like Jesus said to Peter, mind your own business and do the work you've been given to do and stop putting your nose in other people's business. So we ask for mercy, but we never deserve mercy. It's not mercy if we deserve it. It's justice. If we get what we deserve, it's justice. If we don't get what we deserve, it's mercy. Okay? So I'm going to work with a definition of justice that I think is biblical. Justice is impartial and appropriate consequences for individual actions. There's no such thing as a social justice. Justice is uni- Social justice would be uniform consequences for people regardless of their actions. That's a, that's a horrible situation to be in because you may have peaceful people protesting something over here and people that just shattered glass and robbed a store over here. Well, they should not be treated the same because their individual actions are different. So they don't all get put in the same category. It's a really sticky area. We say impartial justice is impartial because Deuteronomy 117, Matthew 22:16, to give you an OT and an NT reference, justice is impartial. You shouldn't show favorites when you're judging people at all. It should be appropriate. Deuteronomy 25.2, Genesis 49.28, the consequences should fit the action. Okay? This means with each individual, you have to look at their actions and make a judgment call that's fair. So when you come to government-style justice, and I think this is the justice we talk about in the, whole, in the, in the, in the news and in kind of our social context, you should be looking for impartial and appropriate reactions to individual behavior. And that's the biblical kind of position. So God is not a God of uniformity and he never treats everyone the same. If, he, if there's actually love going on, he names them by name, even gives them a new name, puts them to individual work, gives them individual tasks, and then he holds them individually accountable. And it's perfectly just. So it applies to this kind of action with justice and mercy being the same kind of thing. God is not the God of all uniformity. There's a wondrous unity of plan. This is Charles Spurgeon and design in all that he does. But there's also an equality, equally marvelous variety in what he does. Look at nature. Look at the world. Look at how different people are. So it's very human to complain about our circumstances, to covet more than we have to demand things that other people have for ourselves. But that's not godly behavior at all. So when people look at others and what they have and say, I don't think that's just, or I don't think that's fair, or I want more of this or more of that, that's not what God has called them to be doing. They should be taking what they've been giving and doing it with all their heart. Equal invitation, appropriate treatment for individual action. Biblically, treating everyone the same is usually how they treat immature people. So that attitude's not new, the Bible's heard about it, but this idea that everyone should be treated the same is usually treated by the Bible as childish or impudent. It's the way children think. When you're a little baby person, you can think that way, and when you're a big person, you think with more maturity. People are treated based on their individual action. It takes a little more judgment. I'll give you three examples. Example number one, murder. The Bible treats murder differently. So. When murderers do something, the judge in Israel is supposed to determine what was in the person's heart when they committed the murder. So first degree premeditated murder has a much harsher consequence 
than accidental or negligent murder. Make sense? Because how the person acted was they killed somebody, but it's treated differently based on who the person is and what's appropriate for what happened. And there's a consequence for all three. You murdered someone, that's not good. You take, took an image of God and you killed it. So you don't do that. So it's treated very differently and that treat, treatment is based on individual action with impartial and appropriate judgment. Second, second example, when Job is tempted to question God's unfair treatment of him, and nobody got treated worse than Job. This guy got shafted, right? Everything in his life was ripped apart, right? God essentially doesn't say, oh, I feel so bad for you, and comes alongside and hugs Job and says, Job, tell me your story. That is not how God treats Job. God treats Job like this. I'm going to read it. And essentially he's saying, Job, put on your big boy pants and grow up, okay? This is what he says in the book of Job. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who's the stupid person talking to me? Job, uh, verse 3, I forgot to write down the chapter. It's the second to last chapter of the book of Job. Verse 3, now prepare yourself like a man. (laughs) That's the big boy pants part. Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Boy, when God talks to you like this, you're in trouble. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know, Job. His answer to Job is basically, I'm God and you're not. And he spends an entire chapter with question after question like this. Where were you when I put the stars together? Where were you when I made up the universe? So it comes back to one of these things. If you don't like what God's done, you can feel free to reject it and go create your own universe. So, Or you can say, okay, God made the world and I guess... The world isn't fair, but I am loved, I am valued, I'm cherished by God, and I have the opportunity to do work that's in front of me today without coveting what somebody else has. Third example, I'm going to go straight to Jesus because he says put on your big boy pants too. Favor to one person is not a disfavor to another person. And this is a concept that as Christians, we can get our hands on this. We can just be happier people, right? Okay, before I read the Jesus thing, I love my grandma. She's passed. She's not with us anymore. But she comes to Christmas one year, and she has this box full of Christmas presents for 18 cousins that are all in the same room. And she starts pulling things out of the box, and she says, this one's for you, Kimmy, Sean, this one's for you, this one's for so-and-so. And then she gave, were you there that year? And she gave, she gave Steph this awesome thing, right? And she just, because Steph was her favorite, to be honest. And all the cousins what? get all upset because she's sweet and she hung out with my grandma and they shared stories and they knit together and they do all these things. And quickly, Steph becomes my grandma's favorite. And one of my cousins yells out and says, that's not fair. She got the blah, 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 blah. And my grandma, just veteran Christian, she, she just goes, life isn't fair. And I have no intention to be fair. That's not what I'm going for. Put on your big girl pants. Because it was a girl cousin that got all upset. My poor wife, welcome to the family. It was like the first year you went, right? My family. I love them. God bless them all. That's not fair. Jesus tells a parable about the farmer who has workers working for him. Goes out at the beginning of the day, hires a bunch says, I'll pay you a denarius. Goes out at lunchtime, grabs another batch. I'll pay you a denarius. Grabs a few at the end of the workday. They only work like an hour. Sweet deal. They get the same pay. 
again, I forgot to write down the chapter. I'm really sorry, you guys. This is in Matthew somewhere. But when the first came, they supposed that they would get more, and they likewise each received a denarius. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who had borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the denarius? Take what's yours and go your way. I wish to give you this last man the same as I gave to you. It's not lawful. It is not lawful for me to do what I. W- oh, this is a rhetorical question. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? Oh. So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. God did the same thing back here in Numbers three and four. Yeah, you're going to carry the boards, but you're precious. You're a Levite. You get an honorable spot right next to the tabernacle. And when we get to the next few chapters and the Kohathites get all complaining about this, boom, God ends them. Watch, if you're in the wilderness in life, watch your tongue and watch what you complain about. Or people that show up to a church and they got instantly got 20 things that can improve that church. Well, you should fix this and do this and do this. Like, just chill and see if this is your fellowship community. And later on, if you're called to that work, God will open your eyes and you can do that work. But just come. We said that to Carol too. Just come and be blessed. We don't need anything from you. Just hang out. And if it's a good fit and you want to be with those people, eventually God opens your eyes and you can see, my goodness, they haven't cleaned those rugs in 20 years. I will clean those rugs. And you can come in during the week, do it real quietly, just do it for the joy of the Lord. God does as he sees fit with those who serve him. And there's only two groups for God. He doesn't divide the world by race. Nowhere in the Bible is it divided by race. It's divided by nations. But he divides people into two groups. There are children of God and there are not. Only two groups of people in God's eyes. If God owns us, we're his to do as he sees fit. It's not our life anymore. We're God's property. Amen to that. Because I don't know what to do with my own life. I'd rather God took care of that. Both Peter and John were redeemed and loved by the Lord. Both were loved by the Lord, and he died on a cross for both of them. And then his response when one gets jealous is Jesus says, what is that to you? How I treat this person is not how I treat that person. What is that to you? Same idea. I'm going to close on two thoughts. The first one's from David Gusick. Uh, I love this quote with Dave Gusick on this, and I just took it right out of his commentary. Much trouble is caused in the service of the Lord by those who desire a different calling than, one, than the one they have, or who are jealous of those who have a different calling, or by those who exalt one calling and abase another. Everyone has a place and a job, and all can set themselves to it. God assigns what we do, and it's all good. When you serve the Lord, it's all for his glory and it's all good. Second thought I'll end on is the one from Jesus. And this one's in John chapter 4, verse 36. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the one saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you're going to get to gather that harvest. That's speaking to us in our generation. Man, these Mararites had to carry this stuff just to set an image of redemption that we get to then understand and become Christians. I'm thankful I don't have to carry boards on my back. 
and Jesus carried a cross on his back and he invites us to pick up whatever our cross is and carry it today and do it with him and take whatever burden he's put on us and, and if we do it, we're with him. And, and if, if we're yoking with Jesus, the burden's pretty light because he does most of the lifting. It's really the only thing we got to work on is a heart of contentment with the jobs that we have. I know that's a lot to pull from Numbers 3 and 4, but I just kept coming back to this idea that God gave him all different jobs and how did he make that decision and how is that fair? And everything in my flesh heart resisted chapters 3 and 4 because I didn't like the idea that some people got this job and some people got that job. And then I thought, man, how convicting is that? That my only problem with this is my heart. God didn't have any problem with this. The Merarites were not the ones that rebelled. It was the Kohathites. They had the easy jobs. So second fiddle is probably the worst spot for complaining, right? Because you want to be first fiddle. Fourth fiddle doesn't aspire to first fiddle. So they just do their fourth fiddle work and they do it happily. And there's much more joy in it. It's not about what we get. It's about the glory that God gets for the work that we do. All the trouble, contention, and discontentment that we can generate in our own heart versus what joy for those whose sins are forgiven, uh, um, Psalm 32. And those, that's kind of that contrast. And we just keep coming back to it all through the Bible is either you're serving God or you're not serving God. Either you're doing it with joy or you're not doing it with joy. So I invite you and I hope for some of you, maybe you're struggling with that this week, just pray about what do you have that God's put in front of you to do work and for a lot of you in a young age, he's told you get out of debt. So you go to jobs and you go to work and you get your butts out of debt, right? And you just hit the grindstone for a while. And that might be as what God has for you. For other folks, us in our older years, well, we still got to get out of debt. So it really hasn't gone away. But you find that you give to God what's God's and you always have time to serve the Lord where you can. And you make that just part of your life. So let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we love you. Uh, we love your word, Lord, and we know that, that our existence is at your mercy, and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the price that you paid with Jesus on the cross to redeem us from the sins that we committed, our heart of flesh that resists your word. Um, and Lord, you, you paid that price for us. You've redeemed us. And Lord, help us come to terms with the idea that you own us that we belong to you as your servants. And instead of fighting and resisting that, we just come to love it because what joy for those whose sins are forgiven. And Lord, we just want that joy in our hearts that we don't have to worry about what we're supposed to do because you've given us our work. Lord, I know that, that a lot of us, when we're in the wilderness, you struggle to clearly see, well, well what's the work I'm supposed to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? Um, and I just appreciate in your word how you give us clear answers to that. Um, that we're supposed to just do those things with a heart uh, that is grateful and good, that we're supposed to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Real simple. Um, Lord, you ask so little of us and you give us so much. Help us mm -hmm. to be grateful in that. Help us to never have a heart of complaining that lasts for more than a couple seconds. Help us to just, Lord, give that over to you instantly, that we don't let our flesh let us complain about the people we're with, about our family, about our church, about our, the people we do ministry with, our classmates, our colleagues at work. Uh, Lord, help us to just be grateful that you've put those people in our life and that our job is to share with them the good news. Uh, to, instead of complaining, Lord, we just act in a way that we're grateful for our opportunities to serve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. 
screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media. 